Hi, I'm Diane Hullett, and welcome to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. Today, I'm here with Dr. Harvey Max Chachanov. Harvey is a professor of psychiatry and a senior research scientist at a cancer care center. And he's written and published a recent paper called The Platinum Rule, a new standard of person-centered care. I heard about this paper from a colleague of mine in Denver, and she kind of sent it to me and said, you know, this could be a really interesting conversation because I think what Harvey has uncovered has to do with bias in patient care, which affects all of us. So with that little introduction, why don't you introduce yourself to us and um, we'll hear about your work. Sure. So, uh, I mean, as you said in the introduction, um, I'm a uh, psychiatrist and for um, giving away my age for the last 35 years, believe it or not, I have been conducting uh, end of life palliative care research. Um, being a psychiatrist, of course, I've been interested in the uh, the emotional landscape of, of end of life for patients and for family members. And over the course of the last number of decades, have really explored uh, a whole variety of issues from anxiety, depression, um, certainly the, the issue of dignity and how one uh, faces end of life uh, with dignity and, and how that can be uh, challenging. Um, and looking at some of the things that we might be able to do in order to understand those issues better and how we might be able to respond to them better. Um, right, so how to, how, to make, how to make the end of life as best it can be. Absolutely. It's, it's coming and where there's a lot we know about how to improve it, but how to then put that into practice. Absolutely. And, um, you know, recently I uh, actually was hearing some colleagues. This was a part of a testimony that I was providing to the Parliament of Canada, who is now reviewing uh, legislation ar around medical aid in dying. And, and one of the uh, uh, witnesses kind of blatantly stated that there is nothing we can do about existential distress towards the end of life. And uh, I felt fortunate in that I was able to provide a, um, a retort to, uh, to one of the, the parliamentarians to say, well, you know, um, I, along with, I mean, colleagues around the world have been grappling with these issues of existential distress and spiritual distress and patients and families nearing end of life for well over 30 years. Uh, this is not a Winnipeg phenomenon or a Canadian phenomenon. This is really an international phenomenon of, of activity that has happened around trying to understand what the experience is like for people who are nearing death and how we can uh, bolster or safeguard their well-being to the very end. Beautiful, beautiful. Not, not to make the assumption that there's nothing to be done. There are things to be done. Well, there are things to be done, and there are are are, are things, uh, and 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 even um, subtleties and nuances around communication, that are exquisitely important, and and that really is kind of a segue into this most uh, recent paper, which I call the Platinum Rule. So um, here's the the idea or the uh, the background and explanation, and. Um, as you and I, Dan, were talking, uh, you know, before we went um, online, you know, it's my sense that this is an issue that is important, um, actually, not only to people who are nearing end of life, but it's important to anyone who has the vulnerability to possibly at some point in their life to become a patient. In other words, this is everyone's issue. 
because we've all had the experience of walking into a healthcare facility, uh, an office, speaking to um, uh, a medical attendant on the end of the line who is dealing with us in a particular way that is going to instill or engender certain feelings. So normally um, in healthcare, when we are um, you know, facing some healthcare challenge or ailment, um, I mean, it's very common, you know, to turn to the healthcare provider to say, well, what do you think we need to do, you know, or, or, or what, would, what would you do? And, you know, we, we do that in a way to kind of seek out uh, comfort and a certain amount of kind of personalization of care. You know, I, I want to make sure, you know, that the person who's looking after me really cares. And if they care, they would be treating me at least as well as they would treat themselves or the people they love. So, Doc, what do you think I ought to do? Is, right, or what, what would you do if it was your mother? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, to answer that question, I mean, doctors, uh, I mean, at least unknowingly, and this is what I unpack in the paper, are really kind of for, uh, you know, kind of a foundation of what they're leaning on is the golden rule. You know, to do unto others as you would want done unto yourself. So, you know, if this was me, this is what I would want. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's an important adage that you find in, you know, most um, certainly um, religious writings, you know, um, across time. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. The golden rule. You're saying like a that's a basis. But your paper says there's a platinum rule that might be even different. So to get to the platinum rule, I mean, what you first need to do is kind of unpack, unpack the golden rule and say, well, I mean, is there a problem here? I mean, you know, or, or am I making, you know, a bigger thing of this than, than really exists? Now, the golden rule assumes that there's some reciprocity between the person receiving care and the person giving care. In other words, if I'm going to give you advice, I have to at least be able to imagine, okay, you know, if I were that person, and if I were that person, what would I want? If there's some reciprocity, if your worldview, Diane, and my worldview are somewhat synchronous, then when you say, well, what do you think I ought to do, Harvey? I can say, well, you know, Diane, I, I think that this might be the, the, the best path to follow. I know that if I were in your position, that sounds like the path that I would follow. So you need to be able to kind of put yourself into that place but the fact is that oftentimes, and all too often, there's a disconnect so that the worldview, the lived experience, the goals of care of somebody who has lived a very different life than the person who is delivering care creates this disconnect. But, you know, if the doctor is still saying, well, you know, if I were you, this is what I would want. Well, the problem with that is if I were you, I might not be able to imagine myself being that disabled. And, you know, I wouldn't want to be that disabled or that disfigured or that disenfranchised um, or that marginalized. And, and the list goes on and on. So you end up giving a piece of advice that is really based on your own biases. You know, if I were that old, you know, if I were that encumbered, if I were that whatever we fill in the blank with, I sure wouldn't want to go that way. And one of the examples I give in that paper 
is of a man who has uh, very challenging uh, health issues, uh, I think a head and neck malignancy. And in fact, his doctor says, you know, you're facing some really terrible times and some really difficult symptoms. And you might want to think about taking measures to end your life earlier, to hasten your death. Well, I mean, the patient, of course, is in, in this particular example, uh, was not only taken aback, but said, you know, that's not my lived experience. I, I don't, that's not the, the path I want to go because in spite of the fact that I'm old and in spite of the fact that I have all of these health issues, I have a good marriage, I've got children, um, I enjoy gardening, and as long as I can do those things, then um, my life has value. And, and by the way, I mean, if you talk to anybody, um, particularly, you know, if you, if you are familiar with people who've lived with um, long-term disabilities, or even, you know, long-term chronic health circumstances, most of them will tell you they've had the experience of feeling assaulted by the healthcare system at some point in time. Right, right. And the reason why is they feel that they have been uh, judged or evaluated, and this is important, and in most circumstances, that they have been seen with an assumption that their lives are based on ongoing, unremitting, intolerable suffering. Right, that that's, that that's all they are, is their suffering in this health problem that the practitioner is seeing and thinks, well, that must just be unrelenting and hopeless. But yes. in fact, for the person living with it, it's just part of what they live with. You know, we are all vulnerable. You know, we, we are all vulnerable. We all become dependent at points in our, in our lives. Um, but if, and, and so the dangerous piece here is that, you know, if the healthcare provide, because these things are unconscious. I mean, you know, again, I'm a shrink, so forgive me, but I'm, but I'm talking about the unconscious. We're not necessarily in touch with what has shaped the filter through which we see the world. Right. And, you know, in, in our world, what shapes that? Well, you know, when we grow up, we are exposed to images and values that have to do with beauty and power um, and affluence and health, those are health, health you know, big time. your body has to be in a certain shape and and anything that falls short of that. I mean, the societal um, way of, of approaching that is to say somehow that is lesser. And so when the doc in the example says, well, you know, you might I mean, your life might not be worth living at this point. My God, if I were in that position, I don't think I would want to go on living. So those are the shortcomings of the golden rule. They, they have to, uh, they, they, it doesn't strip out issues that have to do with bias and these misperceptions. It's making the assumption that I am an accurate measure, an accurate barometer of your healthcare needs, which means I get your world, but the fact is in many instances you don't. Well, and I can see how Harvey, how this can go like a couple, this can go a lot of different ways, right? You can have a 45 year old uh, physician who doesn't understand why a 96 year old would want to keep fighting and have some kind of procedure to stay alive or the same physician or a different physician in the same age difference might think, well, of course, this 96 year old wants to be done. So the bias of the physician could either be towards more treatment or less treatment or different treatment. 
And I think that that's the most critical uh, thing is, is different, that, that we are different than the people um, who walk into our office. And again, if we, if we make the assumption that we can provide an accurate measure, um, people, I mean, you know, as long as you're a size nine, it fits. But if you're bigger than a nine or less than a nine, you know, it, it just isn't comfortable. And so that's where the idea of saying, well, you know, is there um, uh, a platinum rule? So something that, you know, might, you know, look at the golden rule and say, you know, good, but not sufficient. And so the platinum rule is really to say, um, we need to think about doing unto others as they would want done unto themselves. In other words, um, we can't assume that just because we think, you know, it would be a real drag to be wheelchair dependent, a real drag to have to be reliant on a feeding tube, a real drag to have all of these various different healthcare uh, encumbrances, we have to say, well, you know, it's not about my perception only. Um, I mean, not that we should be throwing that out and saying, you know, that has no validity. I mean, it's an important tool. But we need to understand that it has limitations, that it's not accurate in all instances. And, and by the way, I mean, again, I mean, although I work in palliative care, this is not just about palliative care, this is about life. This is about healthcare experience. I was talking to one woman who said, you know, as I'm listening to you and I was explaining this to her, she was saying, you know, I have had the feeling when I've walked into a doctor's office that all he sees is a woman who is obese, and he doesn't see that my aspirations to um, become physically fit, to, to train for, um, uh, I think this was a, a marathon that she happened to be talking about, that those values are important. So you can be judged, you can be seen through um, a filter, and I, I think about you know, our, our biases and our, our unconscious prejudices, as being um, this unconscious filter that taints the way we see people. So the platinum rule says we need to acknowledge that we are a very imperfect measure of our patients' needs. And that if we're going to be responsive to patients, then we need to at least take the time to get into their head to say, so what is it that you would want? What is it that you would need, you know, understanding their goals of care. In palliative care, we've, we, we do this uh, by way, I mean, when it comes to substitute decision making, I mean, we'll often say to the substitute decision maker, uh, appropriately, the question isn't what you would want done for your now dying father. I mean, you know, that, that may be interesting and important, but if we could bring dad into the room, what is it that dad would want? I mean, you may be saying, you know, full guns, you know, full speed ahead, we're going to do everything we can, but um, I'm interested in knowing if we brought your father into this conversation, you know, how would he respond? So there's a very good example, um, and maybe it's, it's somewhat of a banal example of the platinum rule, because it's something that we already do in practice. but. Again, what we don't realize is that these kinds of misperceptions and, um, and 
unconscious biases have the potential to taint every healthcare encounter. So I would say, you know, this isn't just about end of life. This is about how can we make sure that we are understanding that person's goals of care. Right. And so you, you're working with helping physicians and healthcare people kind of see this unconscious bias that they may have. And what advice would you give to the consumer, you know, the person who walks into the ER with a broken leg or who shows up with, um, you know, severe pneumonia at the doctor's office or is having an annual physical and is told you've got to lose weight or you've got to do this or that? as well as end of life kind of palliative care moments. How, how, what do you think the consumer, I'm calling them consumers, I don't know that that's the word, but what can we lay people do to make this a better experience? Well, you know, I mean, I mean the word uh, patient is, is, a, is a generic one, you know, um, and, and patient, you know, refers to anybody who requires health care. And the, the, the problem with becoming a patient is that patienthood can eclipse or overshadow personhood. And the reality is that when that happens, that's when our suffering uh, becomes manifest. You know, if we feel that, you know, I am this lump, I am this fracture, you know, I am that shadow, that my, you know, now medical oncologist is seeing on my chest x-ray. I mean, that and vision- even around end of life, I am this existential angst, right? I, I am a human being, mm -hmm. you know, I, I am a human being. And, and so I know that, so one of the things that we are doing uh, in our work to try and raise the bar on uh, good care, care that helps healthcare providers see patients as people is, um, and we call this uh, intervention the PDQ or the patient dignity question. We are, we have a, a, a protocol where we ask all patients, or if the patient is intensive care, and this is something that we've been doing over COVID because of the number of people who have been in intensive care and ventilated, we will get permission to contact their family member. And we'll basically have a conversation like this you know, we know an awful lot about, you know, your loved one uh, in terms of their medical issues. You know, we know what's happening with their blood gases and we know what's happening with their blood chemistry. And, you know, we, we've got a, a chart full, uh, chock full of all of these medical, physiological dimensions of who this person is or who this patient is. But, you know, there's something that's missing. The reality is we really don't know who they are. So we asked them, what would I need to know or what should we know about your loved one so we can offer them the best care possible? And it's a, it's a relatively simple question. We have maybe a five or 10 minute conversation. Um, what we've been doing during COVID, for example, when we call family members of people who are now ventilated and in intensive care, we'll have a conversation uh, that basically says, you know, we, we know a whole lot about who you are as a, this person is as a patient, but we don't know a lot about your loved one as a person. And we have them respond to a five to 10 minute conversation. We'll, we'll provide them with some cues like, you know, what are the important values, beliefs, worries, concerns, responsibilities, relationships. Um, we will then summarize it into a paragraph or two. 
We called them back in the five to 10 minutes it took us to make the summary. And then we called them back and say, okay, we're gonna read it to you. We're gonna give you the chance to edit it in any way that you like to make sure it's accurate. And here's the litmus test. Can we put this on your chart? I can tell you in 100% of instances, people say that needs to be on their medical chart. Uh, my interpretation being, this is the lens that I want people to see me through or that I want people to see my loved one through. Absolutely. And the stories they tell are gorgeous. I mean, they're magnificent. You know, they're not long and detailed histories because that wouldn't be practical. People can't read through the entirety, the biography of who you are. But, you know, um, there was, and again, this one is top of mind because I just finished looking at it the other day. This was a, a woman who was First Nations. She, um, I believe, was in the residential schools. One of her daughters went missing, possibly murdered. Her other daughter, who was responding to this, was saying how her mother had become kind of a community advocate, a role model. And at the end of her response, she said, you know, I've been struggling with how I could let people in intensive care know who my mother is. And with this PDQ, I've been able to do it. So I'm struck by we, we had the experience of an of an elderly relative in the hospital and and the sense we could feel how the nurses simply saw her as, you know, elderly lady. And we were like, no, no. A month ago, she was in Spain. Like, you don't get it. This is there's something catastrophic has happened and we need to figure out what is going on with her back because this is not who she is. And there was this fascinating kind of sense of how the staff saw her through their lens of like, oh, old lady on the way out. And we were we were big proponents of like, no, no, here's let's blow up this picture and put it on the wall and tell you about what she was doing recently so that you can see the lens through which we'd like to have her come back. We're, we're not interested in having her lay here and be in demise. We want to figure this out so that she can get some of that vibrancy back, if not 100% of it. So there, I, I totally relate to that. It made such a difference to bring pictures in and tell her story to those who were caring for her. And, you know, even and, and when you can, you know, bring that person back, not only uh, in the eyes of the of the healthcare provider. And by the way, years ago, I published a paper in the Journal of Clinical Oncology called Dignity in the Eye of the Beholder. Um, so, again, I've been playing with these ideas for a while um, and, uh, you know, kind of put forward, you know, kind of metaphorically that the reflection that patients wanted to see of themselves in the eye of the healthcare provider is one that's affirming of their sense of dignity. In other words, affirming of personhood. But yeah. what I was going to say in follow up to your scenario was, you know, and even in instances where that person can't be brought back to who they were, nobody wants to be seen as just a, a constellation of symptoms or a differential diagnosis. You know, people want to be seen as who they are or who they were, uh, because that is, you know, the final image that people want healthcare providers to carry with them to the very end, you know, and, and if you don't, what it does, and, and I've written about this, I mean, it, it changes what I call the tone of care. You know, and the, the tone of care isn't always about, you know, what you're doing with a patient or what you're saying to a patient. It is those subtleties and those nuances that say, 
I, rec I recognize you. I, I see you. Um, and that's about personhood. It's not about the patient uh, because, again, patient is generic. And the sicker you are, the more patience it takes to put up with that kind of assault on, you know, your sense of identity. Interesting. So we, so we as um, loved ones of people going in for care can help support that picture of them and their whole personhood. And we, if we have the wherewithal and we are the patient, we can work to bring our personness forward. And we can seek out and advocate for healthcare people who um, seem to do that. And I know that sometimes you get that exceptional or, or hopefully more typical nurse that you feel really got by and it makes all the difference in your recovery. So trying to align what we're looking for with what our medical team can give us, can give us real agency and empowerment, which has gotta be a big part of healing. Absolutely, absolutely, because, you know, um, I mean, it really starts to uh, kind of wither away at your uh, sense of, of self uh, and kind of your soul. Um, you know, when, when Eric Cassell, the, uh, you know, great American uh, uh, internist, wrote about suffering, um, you know, he talked about suffering being, you know, a, a sense that uh, personhood is under assault um, or uh, under threat of disintegration. So when you feel like not just your body, but the essence of who you are is starting to crumble or come undone. Well, I mean, there's, there's no wonder. I mean, just to sort of back up, I mean, the reason that I started to study the issue of dignity in the first place is that when you looked at the Benelux countries where euthanasia-assisted suicide was being offered, according to Dutch physicians, you know why patients were walking that path? more so than any other reason because of lost sense of dignity. So if you, if you stop recognizing the people that you're looking after, you know, if, if they're just symptoms, if they're just differential diagnoses, um, well, you might be doing the right thing uh, medically. From a humanistic point of view, um, you are uh, providing less than adequate care, less than acceptable care, less than what I would call dignity-conserving care. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Harvey. I feel like this has just been amazing food for thought. And I feel like we could have a whole other conversation about palliative care and all your many, many experiences of years working in this field. We may have to do that in the fall. <laughs> hmm. we're, we're, we're conspiring together. Thank you tons for your time. Is there, is there a website or any place where people can learn more about you and your work? Um, the website is currently under construction, but I would say dignityincare.ca. Um, hopefully they'll, they'll come to something that looks somewhat reasonable, somewhat decent. Um, somewhat but navigable. Even, but, even if, but even if they don't, I'm hoping that based on this interview that they'll still see me. <laughs> excellent, excellent, as we all hope to be seen. Thank you so much. My guest today has been Dr. Harvey Max. Oh, can I get the name right? You say it. Chachanov. Chachanov. Such a great name. I'm Diane Hullett, and this has been the Best Life, Best Death podcast. You can find out more about me at bestlifebestdeath.com and sign up for my free monthly newsletter there if you're interested. Thank you again.